<laughs> so the title is To What Serves Mortal Beauty, God and Human Attractiveness. And I'm going to start by praying. <laughs> beautiful Lord, I uh, thank you for your good gifts, um, for the beautiful world that you've created, and I pray that you would give me your wisdom as I speak tonight, that you give us the ability to see more clearly your gift of beauty and how we can relate rightly to it. And I pray that you would help us um, to be humble and to know our place before you. In Jesus' name. Okay, so I'm gonna, uh, can you do the slide? Clark's my slide man. I'm gonna start this lecture by reading from that good Canadian classic, Andrew Gables. So precocious Anne has just been picked up from the train station by Matthew, who, along with his sister Marilla, was expecting an orphan boy to adopt instead. And Anne is chattering away happily, unaware, unaware of this mistake. Dreams don't often come true, do they? Wouldn't it be nice if they did? But just now, I feel pretty nearly perfectly happy. I can't feel exactly perfectly happy because, well, what color would you call this? She twitched one of her long, glossy braids over her thin shoulder and held it up before Matthew's eyes. Matthew was not used to deciding on the tint of ladies' tresses, but in this case, there couldn't be much doubt. It's red, ain't it? He said. The girl let the braid drop back with a sigh that seemed to come from her very toes and to exhale forth all the sorrows of the ages. Yes, it's red, she said resignedly. Now you see why I can't be perfectly happy. <laughs> Nobody could who had red hair. I don't mind the other things so much. The freckles and the green eyes and my skinniness. I can imagine them away. I can imagine that I have a beautiful rose leaf complexion and lovely starry violet eyes. But I cannot imagine that red hair away. I think to myself, now my hair is a glorious black, black as the raven's wing. <laughs> but all the time I know it is just plain red and it breaks my heart. It will be my lifelong sorrow. <laughs> I read of a girl once in a novel who had a lifelong sorrow, but it wasn't red hair. Her hair was a pure gold rippling back from her alabaster brow. What is an alabaster brow? I never could find out. Can you tell me? <laughs> well, now I'm afraid I can't, said Matthew, who was getting a little dizzy. He felt as he had once felt in his rash youth when another boy had enticed him on the merry-go-round of a picnic. Well, whatever it was, it must have been something nice because she was divinely beautiful. Have you ever imagined what it must feel like to be divinely beautiful? Well, now, no, I haven't, <laughs> confessed Matthew ingenuously. Next slide. So this is a childhood, a childhood uh, picture from school of mine. So I took very strongly after Anne and her wish to be divinely beautiful. <laughs> So as my early artwork shows, I was already aware at quite a young age that beauty was primary value for humans. I could have chosen to make any other sentence, like the slimy girl <laughs> jumped slimy by the handsome boy. <laughs> um, but I filled in the blanks with the pretty girl talked to the handsome boy. And you can see I drew a princess and a prince with their knees like just slightly touching. <laughs> and you will see that it's actually the prince doing the talking, not the princess. <laughs> So as a young girl, I imagined what I would want to look like when I grew up. Long auburn hair, which is the color that Anne's hair turned out, and just like Anne wanted, violet eyes. I don't think violet eyes even exist, so talk about unrealistic beauty standards. <laughs> but I knew what would suit the romantic ideal I had. And I had these fantasies despite my parents' concerted effort to keep me away from Disney princesses. It wasn't that I didn't have any other life goals. 
Oh, go one more. Oh yeah, sorry, that was the auburn-haired girl. Go back for one second. There she is, take a look at her. Mariana <laughs> <laughs> was her name. Um, and then, yeah, so this was a, another life goal that I actually had. Um, a fantasy of playing the flute on the moors in Scotland. I clearly had no idea how a flute is actually played. <laughs> but the idea of beauty was still always this compelling one to me, preoccupying. Next slide. So as I grew older, I became more and more aware of societal standards for female beauty. And I made this drawing when I was 15. I put the date on the back. And my ideal had changed to a willowy blonde girl with her head clearly too big for her body, <laughs> like they do in Photoshop. <laughs> so, and you can see behind her is all this looming makeup around her that makes her look this good, and that's just supposed to be me in black and white, unable to measure up. And I never, I don't think I've shown this picture before tonight, <laughs> it's kind of weird, but. Um, so I never arrived at any of my early ideals, and for the, anyone who's listening to the recorded lecture, I don't have auburn hair or violet eyes, I'm not wearing a drapey princess dress. Um, and I never learned to play the flute either. <laughs> Actually, I turned out more like an earlier stage of my art. <laughs> <laughs> so not all of us have this hard evidence of our own history with beauty, but I think most of us give it a lot of consideration. Probably everyone here has thought about it. And I think most of us are early on aware of what's considered beautiful and then how well we measure up to it. We're also aware of the beauty of others, like my teenage picture, which can easily become a source of both envy and desire. And this can even lead to hatred. So on the back, can you go back to the teenage picture for a second? Yeah, on the back of the picture, I wrote different species. And when I look at this picture, I feel sad for my teenage self and the shame I felt for not measuring up. But now I also feel sad for the girls I saw whom I believe did measure up. Did I ever really know them? Or when I believed that they were a different species, was that harmful to them as well as it was to me? In university, I had a friend who was really pretty and very popular with men, and I always struggled a lot to not be envious of her, but I tried not to let it show. Um, I remember a conversation when she once told me, it's hard for me to convince people that I'm more than a pretty face. Mm. It was hard for me to feel very sorry for her. <laughs> <laughs> and I think that she knew that. Um, I could tell that she was hesitant to say that she struggled with being so beautiful. But I knew that what she said was true. Beauty is a complicated thing to bear. One of the most famous examples of the destructive power of beauty is Helen of Troy. That's not her. <laughs> there we go. <laughs> a figure in Greek mythology who is considered to be the world's most beautiful woman. Uh, her kidnapping by Paris, or possibly an affair, it's not clear which, led to the Trojan War. Um, the poet H.D. composed this famous poem. Helen. All Greece hates the still eyes in the white face, the luster as of olives where she stands, and the white hands. All Greece reviles the wan face when she smiles, hating it deeper still when it grows wan and white, remembering past enchantments and past ills. Greece sees unmoved God's daughter born of love, the beauty of cool feet and slenderous knees. Could it love indeed the maid, only if she were laid white ash amid funereal cypresses. So H.D. says Greece has come to hate Helen even in her divine beauty because of the damage it's caused. Greece could only love Helen if she were dead. Hers is the face that, in Christopher Marlowe's words, launched a thousand ships. But Helen is absolved, she's forgiven, because her beauty is considered irresistible. 
even her vengeful husband can't kill her when he sees her beauty again, the sword drops. So this tension between the hatred and the desire that beauty can cause has been with us throughout history, and no less today. We can see the consequences of obsession with beauty near our home than Helen of Troy, as people struggle to achieve increasingly unrealistic standards of beauty, incurring damage to their bodies and to their minds. When human beauty holds this kind of power over us, is it only dangerous? Does it have any value for us? It's important to understand why mortal beauty holds such endearing appeal. What I hope to show through this talk tonight is rather, is that only, rather than only creating disordered desire, human beauty can become something that leads us toward the beauty of God. So what I'm going to do is first to go through a piecemeal history of human thinking about beauty. It's no big deal. Um, <laughs> there's so much stuff to cover, and I'm barely uh, getting through much of it. But these thoughts are coming out of the Western philosophical tradition, and most of the thinkers are men, so I just want to acknowledge that there's a limited scope. There's so little I could talk about and so much. Um, but then the second thing I'm going to do is look specifically at the raging debate about beauty and evolutionary science. I mean, we can get to your book, Katie. <laughs> we'll see if it's relevant. Um, and then third, I'm going to uh, examine what our own troubled relationship with human appearance looks like in today's culture uh, and, and look at whether beauty is just a social construct. Um, this will include um, self-objectification and the resulting body positivity movement. And the fourth, I'm going to look at human beauty in scripture. Um, and then finally, I'll summarize a Christian view of mortal beauty and hopefully give some practical suggestions on how to live well with it. Okay, so start with this guy. Um, that is a thing of beauty. <laughs> so let's take a look at some of the ways people have thought about the nature of beauty over the ages. So obviously an infinite amount could be said about this, and I don't have an infinite amount of time. So I'm just going to focus on what seems the most relevant, which is really this thread of how beauty can be directed toward the divine. So our first stop comes from ancient Greece via the philosophy of Plato. Plato spoke of a world of forms. Our world, the world that we experience with our senses, is only a reflection of the higher intangible world of forms, true forms. And our goal as humans is to transcend from the physical pleasures, like those cheesecake squares outside, <laughs> to the intellectual contemplation of truth. The physical world is essentially an illusion, and the world of forms can only be grasped by reason. So this is what Plato says. And the true order of going, or being led by another to the things of love, is to begin from the beauties of the earth, and not upwards for the sake of that other beauty, using these as steps only, and from one going on to two, and from two to all fair forms, and from fair forms to fair practices, and from fair practices to fair notions, until from fair notions, he arrives at the notion of absolute beauty, and at last knows what the essence of beauty is. So Plato didn't see a contradiction between the pleasure of beauty and the pursuit of philosophy. But this was the process in ancient Greece. A man was attracted to a beautiful young boy and took him as a sexual partner. The boy's beauty caused the male philosopher to contemplate higher beauties, eventually ascending to ultimate truth. And today when we look at this common practice of pederasty in ancient Greece, we find it pretty shocking. We forget about it sometimes. But what I find even more disturbing or equally disturbing is that these boys in Plato's view were seen as stepping stones to enlightenment. It was something to kind of get beyond. Um, and so this is Plato continuing on. For he who would proceed aright in this matter should begin in youth to visit beautiful forms. And at first, if he be guided by his instructor aright to love one such form only, and that would be the young boy, out of that he should create fair thoughts 
and soon he will of himself perceive that the beauty of one form is akin to the beauty of another, and then if beauty of form in general is his pursuit, how foolish would he be not to recognize that the beauty in every form is one and the same. And when he perceives this, he will abate his violent love of the one, which he will despise and deem a small thing, and will become the lover of all beautiful forms. In the next stage, he will consider that the beauty of the mind is more honorable than the beauty of the outward form. So you can see this valuing of the intellectual more than the physical, um, but the physical beauty is a step towards that. So the highest beauty is that of the forms, but this beauty is not relational. The forms have no feeling or personality behind them. You can know them, but they can't know you. And as we will see later, this is starkly different from the Christian worldview. Not only that, but Plato's philosophy treats the physical world as something to escape from. And our bodies are essentially unimportant compared to the primary beauty of the forms. When I look at this, uh, the problem with Platonic theory of forms is that it encourages people to escape the physical and the relational by using the physical and the relational as a means to an end. So they don't have value in themselves in a sense, but except the means to this sort of disembodied intellectual state. And I think it also bears mentioning that the Greek gods were all full of chiseled abs and flowing hair and whatnot. So physical beauty was actually this divine characteristic as well, not just a human one. Uh, Diotima, Socrates' teacher on love, the Plato is writing about this, tells him, but the deformed is always inharmonious with the divine and the beautiful harmonious. So um, in the past, beauty was always traditionally seen as representing something transcendent. From Greek sculpture to the portraits of Leonardo, mathematical measurements were essential to creating the ideal human beauty. You can see this in Greek sculpture. Um, and this flowed out of a worldview that saw the universe as ordered by the divine. If you could figure out the laws of the universe, then you could figure out beauty too. Next slide. So I'm skipping over tons of history. <laughs> but I can just talk twice as long. Um, with the rise of the Enlightenment, the primary law of the universe began to be seen as natural rather than divine. You can see here's some guys looking at, they, there was a big interest in classical um, sculpture and art in that time. Um, but the ultimate transcendence became human reason. So someone could, through the use of reason, stand back from the beautiful object and assess it as beautiful according to this standard set of rules. But personal bias didn't enter the picture. In the words of Umberto Eco, this was a search for rules that were certain and therefore rigid and binding. This is a famous painting, which I love, I love this poem picture. So this is uh, the Romantic period, and it created a strong opposition to the supremacy of reason. So for the Romantics, all of life should be experienced through an aesthetic lens. There were still these absolute truths, in the universe, but they couldn't be grasped by just reason alone. It wasn't just the scientific method anymore. Um, we needed subjective experience and emotion. They're just as important as science and understanding reality. And then there was always this longing in romantic art for um, something almost too deep for words, something that transcended just the material here and now reality, um, more than what science could measure, and something that humanity seemed to have lost. So Wordsworth, a romantic poet, wrote of this longing. Our birth is but a sleep and a forgetting. The soul that rises with us, our life's star, hath had elsewhere its setting and cometh from afar. Not in entire forgetfulness and not in utter nakedness, 
but trailing clouds of glory do we come from God, who is our home. Heaven lies about us in our infancy. So for the Romantics, beauty, especially nature, was the way to reclaim a lost connection with the divine. John Keats's poem, um, Ode on a Grecian Urn, is one of the <laughs> most beautiful lines about beauty, probably lots of, or sorry, the most famous lines about beauty. Um, it's a beautiful poem too, but ends with these lines. Beauty is truth, truth beauty. That is all ye need know on earth and all ye need to know. And that kind of sums up this romantic view. Um, and since that's all you need to know, I'll just end the lecture here. <laughs> just kidding. Um, can you, next slide. So following Romanticism was the decadent movement, and this really celebrated artifice and the satisfaction of the senses. And probably the best example of the decadent view of beauty in my mind is encapsulated in Oscar Wilde's only novel, The Picture of Dorian Gray. So this is a story that follows Dorian, a beautiful young man. And Dorian has sold his soul so that his portrait shows all Dorian's signs of aging and corrupting, corruption instead of him. So as he becomes more and more corrupted, his picture becomes corrupted, but he stays young and beautiful. And you can see the picture there. Um, Dorian's bad influence friend, Lord Henry, comments on Dorian's beauty. Beauty is a form of genius. It is higher indeed than genius, as it needs no explanation. It is one of the great facts of the world, like sunlight or springtime or the reflection in dark waters of that silver shell we call the moon. It cannot be questioned. It has the divine right of sovereignty. It, make prin it makes princes of those who have it. You smile? Ah, when you have lost it, you won't smile. People say sometimes that beauty is only superficial. That may be so. But at least it is not so superficial as thought is. It's very Oscar Wilde. <laughs> to me, beauty is the wonder of wonders. It is only shallow people who do not judge by appearances. Yes, Mr. Gray, the gods have been good to you, but what the gods give, they quickly take away. This is beauty as a rule unto itself, beauty for beauty's sake. Lord Henry sees people as having no responsibility except to enjoy beauty as much as they can. He's a man who loves flowers and jewels and clothes. It's the religion of beauty. Life lived in surrender to whatever brings us most pleasure, whether flowers or jewels are a beautiful person. And when the beauty gets old to us, we move on. So beauty for beauty's sake was developing as its own religion at the same time as major, major changes in science were calling into question the place of the divine in the world around us. So Darwin's theory of evolution was about to change dramatically how we think about human beauty. In part two, I'm going to talk about the evolutionary science and beauty. Um, so maybe the whole time I've been talking, some of you have been thinking, well, enough of the philosophers and artists. Doesn't science already have a clear answer to why we find certain people beautiful? As we've seen, through the ages, beauty had been seen as having some kind of correlation to something divine. Science was always considered subservient to philosophy and theology. It was something that serves that, but it's not above it. Um, there was still so much mystery in the world that only the supernatural could explain. But with Darwin's theory of evolution, people began to feel that science could hold all the answers to our deepest human questions. <coughs> and rather than have any bearing on divine truths, beauty started to be seen from a naturalistic perspective. That is, everything could be explained through natural causes. So this is also sometimes called scientism, seeing scientific knowledge as sufficient for all of human life. We don't need anything else. And in this view, 
beauty, from birds to art to human bodies, has no relationship to anything transcendent. Plato saw the material world as illusion and the spiritual as reality, but scientism claims that the spiritual world is an illusion and only the material world is real. Oh, um, I think, go back, actually go back to that. So in evolutionary theory, most scientists have believed that the beauty of animals and humans occurs from adaptive selection. That is, through millions of years, animals gain or lose whatever parts of their body will help them best survive their environment. And this is the survival of the fittest, which I'm sure you all know about. Um, and what we consider beautiful is really nothing more than a happy chance. Dennis Dutton, a prof professor of the philosophy of art, takes this view of beauty. This is his book. He argues in his 2009 book, The Art Instinct, that all our aesthetic preferences can be explained through evolution. Here are a couple quotes from him. Evolution, thankfully, gave us capacities and yearning to help us survive and reproduce in the ancestral world. So yearning is not this longing for something transcendent, but for something to help us reproduce. But an explanation of why we have them was never part of the deal. What evolutionary aesthetics asks is for us to reverse engineer our present tastes, beginning with those that appear to be spontaneous and universal in order to understand where they came from. So these things that we see, we think, oh, well, everyone has this feeling of beauty. When they look at a landscape like this, with trees and mountains, um, but actually, to, for him, this is because we evolved from this landscape that we look at this painting and find it beautiful. So we want to, there were predators and we wanted to get into a forked tree and escape them, so we like paintings that have forked trees in them. So, and the grasslands are, are kind of our ancestral home. So that's why we look at this painting and find it beautiful, and that's like a cross-cultural thing to him. Um, so everything can be explained by evolution in his view. All our longings are um, a, an effect of our drive to survive. So our longing for certain types of beauty is a result of early encoding in the human race and really nothing more than that. There is no possibility of transcendence. Truth is science, science is truth, and that is all you need to know on Earth, <laughs> and all you need to know. <laughs> but actually, not all evolutionary scientists agree with them. Interestingly, there is a deep debate between evolutionary scientists about why beauty developed, which I did not know until researching for this lecture. Mm -hmm. So from early on, Darwin was perplexed by the conundrum of the peacock. He wrote, the sight of a feather in the peacock's tail whenever I gaze at it makes me sick. <laughs> the sound of the peacocks from across the road whenever I hear them makes me sick. But that's a different, different story. <laughs> this is a picture I took nearby. The peacock's tail makes it harder to fly and easier to be seen by predators. Once I saw a peacock flying across the Ganges River and that was not a very graceful sight, I have to say. Darwin found that the unwieldy beauty of the peacock's tail couldn't be explained by survival of the fittest. So he developed the theory of sexual selection. And its basic premise is that certain traits evolved just because the females liked them. The idea, uh, the idea that female preference was a determining factor in evolution wasn't very popular with scientists in the Victorian era. It was also difficult to explain or test, so most biologists continued to focus on survival of the fittest as a primary theory. So today they posit that any peacock that can survive toting around such a huge tail will be the strongest, and therefore the most fit for reproduction. Now this is what ornithologist Richard Prum calls honest signaling. So this is the theory that the traits that animals are attracted to, including us, actually represent a biological advantage. 
a superiority of reproductive fitness. So beauty is only about utility. And this extends to our visual attraction to other humans. But Prum argues against this honest signaling theory in his 2017 book, The Evolution of Beauty. He says the claim that beauty in humans is a true indicator of genetic superiority actually has serious ethical implications. Prum writes this. Evolutionary psychology teaches us that certain mate choices are sanctioned by science as adaptive, that is, universally good, while others are not, and these views are changing how we think about ourselves. Oh, that's not the quote I had there, but we'll get to that quote. Um, so that is based on the survival of the fittest. It's considered common sense that we find those people beautiful who actually are the best genetic partners. And most of us have heard, for example, that men prefer a certain waist to hip ratio, so like hourglass figure <laughs> in women, um, because these traits actually indicate higher fertility. Have you guys heard this before? Yeah, it's, it's said often. But Prom notes that there is actually no proof that this hip to waist ratio is really correlated with high fertility. In fact, one study of Polish women concludes the opposite. <laughs> Why Polish? I don't know. <laughs> and he says some characteristics do give survival advantage, such as lighter skin in northern regions, but he also argues that most of the characteristics human find, humans find sexually attractive actually don't further survival. I can give you examples of those <laughs> in private later. <laughs> so, uh, next slide. Likewise, David Rotenberg's 2011 book, Survival of the Beautiful, Art, Science, and Evolution, argues that evolution isn't only survival of the fittest, but also survival of the most interesting. He writes this about the peacock. In sexual selection, there need be absolutely no reason for the peacock to have that crazy tail beyond the fact that females have evolved to like that kind of tail. Indeed, the liking of that bird tail, a tail more outlandish than any other avian tail, is something completely arbitrary, with no significance except that the females happen to like it. Nowadays, biology tends to treat sexual selection as a subset of natural selection, but that's not the way Darwin saw it. For him, sexual selection was a slap in the face of natural selection, a challenge, a contrasting and conflicting force working its own wily ways against the doctrine of efficiency and adaptation. So Prom claims that the theory of sexual selection has been suppressed in part because it makes the world harder to explain. When he spoke to a colleague about his ideas, the colleague exclaimed, but that's nihilism. <laughs> so a world where everything isn't determined just by the struggle to survive can seem frightening, frightening, not, frightening, <laughs> frighteningly non-rational. Prum, on the other hand, sees his view of sexual selection as less deterministic. It provides, what he says, a world of freedom and choice that is deeply thrilling, a world of greater beauty than can possibly be accounted for without it. Can you go back to the, that one? Yeah. Beauty and desire in nature, writes Prum, can be as irrational, unpredictable, and dynamic as our own personal experiences of them. It's pretty interesting. And a, another classic case study is Australian bowerbirds. Go ahead. Gabby, who lives in Australia, said that. I don't know where you are, Gabby. There you are, mate. Um, she, she's seen this bird in her, your grandma's backyard, right? Yeah. Uh, building its little bower, which is pretty cool. Um, so they build, the males build these elaborate bowers. They're all different kinds of shapes, different species will do different shapes. 
Um, and they're decorated with these brightly colored objects that are curated to the standard, um, not only of the species, but sometimes even of the one group within the species will have their own aesthetic standard for how you make things. Um, and this is to attract a female. They don't live in that bower. It's just like their little seduction parlor, basically. <laughs> um, so these bowers actually make the bird more susceptible to predators because they have to stay in one place for a long time building something really complicated, and they put lots of bright things all around it. So it's basically like, hello, I'm here, come meet me. Um, but the female will come up and inspect the artwork, and if she doesn't like it, she'll move on to someone else. Um, and she appears to choose a mate with great decorating skills, which I really sympathize with. Like, who doesn't <laughs> want a man who can pick out wallpaper? <laughs> it's great. Um, so Rotenberg writes, uh, I think that's the next one. Oh, no, that's the one. See Is it only wishful human thinking that gives every evolved trait in an animal a perfectly rational explanation? The statistical evidence for such hypotheses is always mixed at best. Evolution is the greatest idea we have to make sense of the moving march of life, but it often is misunderstood. We imagine that it explains much more than it does. Extreme examples, such as bowerbirds and humans, push the aesthetics of life ever closer to the forefront, as we realize that beauty all around us, in appearance, in action, cannot be brushed away as mere accident. It's not just a happy accident that there's beauty. So the assumption that many of us make that our conception of beauty is all about instinct may not be so sure after all, as you see this debate even in science going on. And in any discussion of attraction, we have to note that even within the same culture, we aren't all attracted to the same types of people. In fact, we might not even be attracted to somebody who's considered conventionally beautiful, even if we can agree that they are. Attraction can be hugely variable, and we feel that individual preference is part of it. So is it possible that more is at work in our attraction to human beauty than just instinct towards the fittest genetically? So one theory would be that, um, yes, something more is at work, and that is society. Um, that beauty is a social construct. So that's the section I'm going to move on to now, is beauty a social construct? Um, so it's a good place to be. <laughs> Some would say that it's society rather than biology that gives us our standards of beauty. And in this section, I'll talk about the problems of overemphasis on beauty in our culture. Now, <laughs> this is tricky, but in discussing cultural standards of beauty, I really do have to note the difference between male and female <coughs> experiences. And I don't want to hash this all through ad nauseum, but it does bear saying that in general, there's significantly more pressure in this culture for women to achieve a certain standard of beauty. And in preparing for this lecture, I've had the privilege of talking to a lot of friends about their own experiences of beauty, and that includes my male friends. And they have told me that they have also <laughs> struggled with insecurity about their appearance. Um, so, and I know that they consider more than just what a woman looks like. So I really don't want to oversimplify the issue by painting men as just shallow and only interested in women's appearance, and women as super deep and only care about men's character. <laughs> because women can be every bit as objectifying as the worst men, and men can and do choose women with beautiful hearts, not just beautiful bodies. But also, as I prepared for this lecture, I looked at many, many paintings from art history and many pictures of current standards of beauty. And it was impossible to ignore that the bodies most often on display for assessment were female, and more often than not in revealing or absent clothing, like half my dress is missing and I didn't notice kind of paintings <laughs> that always happen. Um, but the famous paintings of nude women before photography were just not something that the average person was <coughs> surrounded by. 
<coughs> if you're rich, you had some, but you, it wasn't everybody who had these. But now we have photographs. And even though we all know about Photoshop and we know that they use it, we still believe that photos, unlike paintings, tell the truth. Like we know when we're looking at a picture of Helen of Troy or painting, we're like, okay, well, someone painted that. But if we look at a photograph of someone on Instagram, we're like, yes, that is a real person that I, that I could be like or not be like. Um, and, and now with the internet, the dissemination of photos has just snowballed. <laughs> so you can compare yourself now to people all over the world who have the best makeup skills, the trendiest clothes, and the fanciest Instagram filters. That is a lot to live up to. A few years ago, I was in a local mall talking to a guy selling skincare products. You know how they set up those kiosks and then try to like snag you like a trapdoor spider. Um, and I was resisting his spiel, being kind of sassy. And he told me, well, you know, a woman's face is her business card. Well, I wish I could tell you that I sat down and engaged him in a thoughtful Socratic dialogue. But what really happened is that I said something rather rude and then walked away. <laughs> so it's a good thing that my tongue is not my business card. <laughs> that women are judged first for their looks, while men might be judged for the status expressed by a real business card, is hardly a groundbreaking idea, but it's rarely said that bluntly. <laughs> in fact, beauty is shown to act as a business card, and not just for women. We experience what psychologists call the halo effect, where someone with one virtue makes us believe other virtues are present as well. I mean, you can say that beauty is a virtue, but some quality. Um, a lot of research has been done around the halo effect of beauty. Though we may logically know that beauty gives no inherent character to those who possess it, we still find ourselves feeling that it does. Studies show all kinds of advantages for beautiful people, including more likely to be hired for a job, things like that, practical things. Um, and we're used to the shorthand of beautiful equals good. Look no farther than Disney movies to know that the villains will almost always be ugly and the heroes always beautiful or the heroines. Can you? <laughs> Sometimes you get a beautiful female villain, but she's kind of scary looking still. <laughs> yeah, there's Hades in the corner. That's Greek. There's the Greek mythology link there. Um, so Renee Engel, in her book Beauty Sick, How the Cultural Obsession with Appearance Hurts Girls and Women, discusses how girls are trained from an early age to obsess over their appearance. She calls this body monitoring. It's a constant awareness of how we look, even at the cost of our ability to focus on other tasks. The feeling that others are always looking at you, <coughs> assessing your body, and that you're failing their assessment can lead to serious and even life-threatening problems, such as eating disorders and self-mutilation. And Geld writes, beauty sickness is fed by a culture that focuses on women's appearance over anything else they might say or do or be. Now, in reaction to the negative effects of objectification, particularly for women, we've seen the emergence of the body positivity movement. Do you remember this? <laughs> the Dove Real Beauty campaign. This is an early example of this. And these ads attempted to encourage women to love their bodies rather than to try to look like a model. The campaign used images of real women in a variety of body sizes and showed these heartwarming commercials in which women learned that others saw them as more beautiful than they did. Like in one commercial, uh, a, a sketch artist drew pictures of women as they described themselves and couldn't see them, and then someone else described them, and the picture that the other person had generated was much more beautiful than their own description. That's just one example. Um, so body positivity attempts to celebrate every body type and to teach people that if we can just change how we see things, everyone can be beautiful. 
and um, Alessia Kara, she's Canadian, she's Canadian, right? <laughs> um, has a song, she's a musician, she has a song that sums up this view pretty well, and I want to play her song with the video. She just wants to be beautiful, she goes unnoticed, she knows no limits, she craves attention, she praises an image, she prays to be sculpted by the sculptor. And Jess Harbel. It's Francesca Miles. Myra and Marty Flores. Siobhan. Joanna. Arsina. Josh. It's Kylie. Miranda. It's Joey. Grace. It's James Cashley. See, the light is shining. Deeper than the eyes can find it. Maybe we're made of blind souls. She tries to cover up her pain. And cut her woes away. As cover girls don't cry. After the face is made. But... There's a hope that's waiting for you in the dark You should know you're beautiful just the way you are And you don't have to change a thing The world can change its heart No scars to you beautiful We stars and we're beautiful My peers and then there was me And a lot of people aren't afraid to, to give their opinions Whether they're hurtful or not People will laugh and stare watching you eat and making little comments as I grew up thinking that I had to look a certain way. I never thought I was as pretty as the other girls. I'm proud of it. I shouldn't be trying to hide it.
personality, our strengths, everything else at the end of the day. What only matters is what I think of myself and that everyone has different kinds of feelings. that it says oftentimes the world both directly and indirectly tells us that we shouldn't be happy with ourselves if we don't fit certain beauty standards scars to you beautiful is a reminder that beauty isn't only one look shape size or color it isn't even always a tangible tangible it all it comes in an endless amount of forms and we need to recognize that so when i it's a pretty heartwarming video when i first heard the song on the radio i thought this is great you don't have to change a thing, the world can change its heart, as the chorus says. Then I started to think a bit more about the implications of the song. <coughs> Isn't Alessia Cara actually saying that we do need to change something, our own brains? That remember the one girl in the video said, I began to realize that this was mostly just in my head, all in my head. Um, the world isn't the problem, <laughs> so much as we are, actually. It's our job to change our view of beauty, and that in turn will change reality. And Engel, Engel writes of the body positivity movement. The patronizing notion that women can simply choose beautiful also ignores the fact that powerful cultural beauty standards do exist. A choose beautiful campaign is unlikely to be successful in a climate where only certain body types and faces are considered beautiful. These messages don't exist in a vacuum. The problem is, and this is me now, <laughs> is that body positivity campaigns still put the focus on how you look. They also cast blame on people who can't overcome their insecurities by essentially telling them their body shame is all in their head. Mm -hmm. This denies the fact that our society has these encoded standards of beauty and that people are treated accordingly. Anger writes, every one of these You Are Beautiful campaigns sends women down the road to thinking more about how they look. We don't need any help doing that. Although it was certainly not the intent of the advertisers, these ads actually encourage body monitoring and self-objectification. I watched this movie on an airplane recently. <laughs> we have limited choice. Um, and this is Amy Schumer starring in I Feel Pretty. And in the movie, Schumer's character works for a fashion magazine. Um, actually, it's a makeup company. I don't know. I wrote that down. And she dreams of being beautiful enough to work for the company's reception desk. She has high goals. <laughs> when she hits her head in a spin class, she regains consciousness believing that she's incredibly gorgeous. With her newfound confidence, she's able to get her dream job, and she gets attention from this rich and handsome man. And of course, the movie has its cautionary moral tale and leaves Schumer's character with an average-looking boyfriend and no more delusions of grandeur. But the overall message is that believing you're pretty will change some, everyone else's perception of you. And you can see the tagline right there, change everything without changing anything. And that is the kind of diet that I want to go on. <laughs> <laughs> So being pretty is all a matter of perception. The problem is yours, and it's solved if you focus even more on your appearance. But is the problem all in our own heads? If we just feel pretty, do we become so? So while the romantics believe that beauty points us to an absolute, in the postmodern era, the concept of absolutes has been scorned. Everything we're taught is a social construction. It's made up by different cultures. 
There is no true concept of beauty except for what a culture creates. And all these constructs are about power, about different groups creating systems that will make sure that they're <laughs> the ones who stay on top and get to control things. The Beauty Myth is a classic feminist work published in 1990 by Naomi Wolf, and it posits that the emphasis on beauty for women is a social construction designed to inhibit women from gaining power. As women come into the workforce, this myth gets even stronger, tightened down on, because it's one of the last things standing that keep women controlled. So you can be a working woman, but you also have to be pretty. <laughs> um, and I think there are certainly a lot of legitimate elements to this claim. And we can see that with female politicians, for example, like someone like Hillary Clinton, who just gets criticized for how she looks, regardless of her political skills. That in, this happens, I think, with tons of politicians. Whenever I look at videos on YouTube of a woman doing some talented thing, you can see that like most of the comments are about how she looks. Um, and we can hardly argue that the majority of pornography is empowering in its portrayal of female beauty. Rather, it's caused many women to become even more critical of every single part of their bodies and to more readily accept acts that degrade them. Pornography is not relational. It treats those it portrays as objects rather than humans. So remember, Plato taught that possessing another human's beauty could lead to this philosophical enlightenment, the stepping stone idea. And this was the beauty of young boys at, mercy, at the mercy of older men who were on a supposedly philosophical adventure. In porn, we keep this principle of possession, but leave out the enlightenment. To be aware of our own desire and then to fulfill it is, in our culture, often considered all the enlightenment we need. Beauty as a slave to serve our pleasure makes us slaves to beauty. It forgets mutual care and turns beauty into a beast. Now, when we look at the, dis the destruction that our idolization of beauty has caused, it's tempting to treat the concept of beauty as the main problem. However, the idea of beauty as social construct and social construct alone is, I believe, too dismissive of our experience of beauty in general. And now, many have argued, including Wolf, that standards of beauty vary so widely with culture that there's no objective way to measure beauty. That is certainly true to some extent. For example, in the West, we tend to value thin bodies, and it reflects a certain level of status or income, because you can go to the gym, you can eat healthier food. Uh, but then in some developing countries, a more, more body fat is considered attractive, and that shows that you're a well-fed person. Um, but studies do point to some universal factors of beauty. So for example, facial symmetry, clear skin, and then, like we talked about, the hourglass figure in women, among some other things. And even studies that have been done with babies show that they look longer at conventionally beautiful faces, and that is long before they've had a chance to be conditioned by culture. So beauty is variable across cultures. We see some things we think look pretty weird in other cultures, but it's not completely variable. The idea of beauty as completely socially determined is as narrow as the purely adaptive theory of evolution, which sees beauty as only an indicator of genetic suitability. Both views dismiss as illusion the deep power that beauty can have for us. And we can't deny that human beauty is a huge idol in our society. We can experience deep shame for failing to meet whatever standards our culture dictates. But does that mean we have to ignore beauty altogether? Does it mean that beauty really is only in the eye of the beholder, or the mind of the beholder? If we can change the eye, do we change what it beholds? I want to argue that it's not the recognition of beauty that proves a problem, but our disproportionate valuing of it. And I'm going to do this first by looking at the view of beauty in the Bible, and this is part four of my talk. So, they got some beautiful leaf 
things. <laughs> um, and the subject of human beauty is so vast, I've only had time to touch on a very few points historically. But I'm going to ask now, what does the Christian worldview have to say about all of this? Is there something that the Christian view of God and creation can tell us about human beauty that these other worldviews can't? And to do this, I'm going to follow the grand biblical narrative pattern of creation, fall, and redemption. And I'm making the assumption in this section that the Bible is God's word, that, and that because of that, it still speaks to our deepest human longings today. So starting with creation. In Genesis, God created Adam and Eve. And unlike the animals, Adam and Eve were created in the image of God. So they were able to reflect him in a way that no other creature could. This isn't about God's physical image, since he is a spirit. But God also gave Adam and Eve physical being and called it good. He created them physical on purpose, not just spirits. He created them um, with bodies that were not to be despised. Adam and Eve were naked and unashamed, and God made them beautiful to each other. Adam spoke poetry when he saw Eve, and they enjoyed God's beauty and also each other's. And I think we can get a glimpse of what that innocent enjoyment of each other's beauty might have been like in the Song of Songs, also called the Song of Solomon in the Bible. And this is the Bible's great love poem. It goes into raptures about the beauty of both the male and the fem female lover. They talk to each other. And it really struck me, looking at this again, that the equality of desire between the man and the woman is very striking in such an ancient text. So I don't think I put it up there. But the man says, Behold, you are beautiful, my love. Behold, you are beautiful. Your eyes are doves. <laughs> she returns the compliment. Behold, you are beautiful, my beloved, truly delightful. They use lavishly poetic language to describe each other's bodies, including many metaphors that sound pretty weird to a contemporary audience. <laughs> I'm still waiting for the day someone compliments me by telling me my nose is like a tower or my hair is like a flock of goats. <laughs> Human beauty in the Song of Solomon is a created good given for us to enjoy. Even the friends of the lovers praise the couple's beauty, and the couple recognizes their own beauty too. They are just dripping in finesse. <laughs> there is no shame over sexual desire in the context of this marriage. The physical world isn't something to escape from or to hyper-spiritualize. The lovers just enjoy each other and they're completely present physically with each other. These are two people experiencing the glory of attraction without shame. Well, it's really hard to imagine this way of thinking now when we have so much baggage about our own bodies and everyone else's. Why can't we be so simple in our delight of human beauty? What went wrong? Well, we have to travel back to Genesis to find out. Eve saw that the forbidden tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise. So she and then Adam ate the fruit. And I chose this picture because I like that they're both eating the fruit at the same time um, instead of just Eve. Here we see the disordering of desire. So rather than desire to obey God first, Adam and Eve are led astray by the delight of their eyes, the tree, and desire the fruit instead. God is no longer seen as the ultimate source of beauty, but instead one who restricts their possession of it. As soon as they disobeyed God, Adam and Eve could no longer enjoy each other's beauty and their own. They felt shame. They covered themselves, the first thing they do. And they hid from God, and that continues on today, this hiding. And when we envy others or feel ashamed of our own bodies, we're experiencing the effects of the fall. So we can see that the human heart has always wanted to possess what looks beautiful without asking about its proper relationship to the object that it desires. We grasp at beauty without recognizing God as the source and the one who guides us in how to relate properly to it. 
And this leads to alienation from God, from others, and even from the rest of creation. So this second section is the fall. Um, nope, just stay there. <laughs> I didn't get time to make more pictures than that. Uh, so how does sin affect human beauty after Adam and Eve? Throughout scripture, we see the resulting disordered relationship. Abraham's wife, Sarah, is the first pretty woman to show up, followed by Isaac's wife, Rebecca, and Jacob's wife, Rachel. Sarah's beauty is this cause of crisis, as Abraham twice tries to protect himself rather than his wife by pretending she's his sister. Um, then Isaac pulls the same trick with the same messy results, runs in the family. And Jacob loves his first wife, Leah, less than her sister, Rebecca, because Leah is less beautiful. This leads to jealousy and taunting between the sisters and then rivalry between their sons, and it goes on and on. One of the most famous biblical examples of the dangers of lust for human beauty is David and Bathsheba. When David spotted Bathsheba, she became only an object to satisfy the king. David cared so little for her as a person that he actually murdered her husband to cover his sin. The Bible doesn't shy away from mentioning human beauty. It never denies its existence or attempts to convince people that everyone is really equally beautiful. It just says, she was beautiful, he was beautiful. Its approach is not philosophical, it's just matter of fact. But it gives us warnings about the danger of emphasizing beauty too much. So Paul tells us in Romans that people have worshipped and served the creature rather than the creator. This disordered desire has caused people to be consumed with passion for each other rather than for God. Our wrong attitudes towards beauty are certainly a part of this. Scripture recognizes our tendency especially to overemphasize female beauty to our own harm. The book of Proverbs warns, like a gold ring in a pig's snout is a beautiful woman with no discretion. It's a humorous image, but it's one that drives home the point. Beauty doesn't go hand in hand with virtue. It's not like a Disney movie. Proverbs ends with a poem praising strong and competent womanhood, closing with these lines. <coughs> Charm is deceptive and beauty is fleeting, but a woman who fears the Lord is to be praised. Give her the fruit of her hands and let her works praise her in the city gates. In other words, it's a woman's character, not her face, that's her business card. <laughs> What's pleasing to the eye, like the fruit in the garden, is not an indicator of something or someone's moral goodness. We can easily be fooled by beauty. It's very immediate to our senses, and we have to double-check ourselves. But that doesn't mean physical beauty is unimportant. So let's take a brief look at the story of Esther. She is a beautiful woman famous in biblical history. King Ahasuerus, who is noted in other historical sources as a wildly impulsive man, got mad at the sea for breaking his bridge and gave it a bunch of lashes, <laughs> and then ordered the killing of the people who made the bridge, um, he wanted to trot out his queen's beauty before a banquet of drunken nobles. When Queen Vashti refused to be paraded, the king fired her from being queen. Then he collected all the beautiful young virgins and chose his favorite to be queen, which happened <coughs> to be the young Jewish girl Esther, and this is the time when there was the Israelite exile in Persia, they were in Persia. And we have to remember this is not a love story as it's sometimes portrayed in really terrible movies. <laughs> um, <laughs> As a woman and a religious and ethnic minority, Esther had no power. This was not a voluntary Miss America competition, and King Hazarus was no strong, sensitive man. Esther's beauty made her a candidate for power, but it was at quite a cost to her own personal freedom. But Esther couldn't refuse. She was at the mercy of unjust systems and a godless king. 
Esther's beauty is never dismissed as frivolous, but neither is it seen as something that gives her more value than others. Esther's uncle Mordecai tells her, who knows whether you have not come to the kingdom for such a time as this. Esther's beauty wasn't something she had earned, but her willingness to take wise counsel from those within the palace and without allowed her to use her beauty as a gift that ultimately helped to save the Jewish exiles in Persia. Now within our own world's disproportionate value of beauty, a beautiful person might wonder how to best bear his or her own attractiveness. At times, the church has shown a fear of human beauty, seeing it as a dangerous distraction. But we see from the story of Esther that beauty can be a good gift when it's accompanied by wisdom. <laughs> the most amazing affirmation of our physical bodies came in the incarnation of Jesus Christ. He didn't look like that. <laughs> Jesus could have wandered around as a ghost or as a sort of hologram, um, but he didn't. He came in the flesh, in our human flesh. And what's more, in his prophecy about Jesus, Isaiah says, he had no form or majesty that we should look at him and no beauty that we should desire him. Yeah, not like that. <laughs> have you ever wondered why Jesus didn't look like a Greek god? Well, we can't say for sure, but it seems that from what Isaiah wrote, that God wanted us to want him for other reasons than physical beauty. He knows just how quickly we can turn to worshiping beauty for itself. Even God's prophet Samuel was blindsided by the beauty of David's big brother Eliab. But God told him, Do not look on his appearance or on the height of his stature, because I have rejected him. For the Lord sees not as man sees. Man looks on the outward appearance, but the Lord looks on the heart. In the New Testament, Paul makes the astounding claim that our bodies can become the dwelling place of God. Contrary to our culture's ingrained idea that our bodies are our own possessions to do whatever we want with, Paul says our bodies belong to God. Do you not know that your body is a temple of the Holy Spirit within you, whom you have from God? You are not your own, for you were bought with a price, so glorify God in your body. Glorify God in your body. It's amazing that we can do that. God cares about our bodies. This is a stunning and painful part of being human, and it can be redeemed by God and become his dwelling place. Jesus' body certainly offers proof that physical beauty is no prerequisite for bearing God's image. And unlike in Plato's thought, we don't have to escape from our bodies to a purely spiritual world. We will have a redeemed physical body for eternity, but we don't know what it will look like. <laughs> Christians should never believe that those with more physical beauty are more valuable to God, any more than God prefers intellectual or athletic people. <laughs> Some of you recognize this. So our ultimate beauty comes in recognizing the primacy of the beauty of God. And, and this is my church, some of our churches here. And there's an arch over the altar with gold lettering that reads, Oh, worship the Lord in the beauty of holiness. This is a quote from Psalm 96. In the same psalm, the poet says, For all the gods of the peoples are worthless idols, but the Lord made the heavens. Splendor and majesty are before him. Strength and beauty are in his sanctuary. And when I think of all the gods of the peoples, <laughs> I think of beauty as one of those gods. Um, and I really love reading these words over the altar where we need, kneel to receive Jesus' body broken for us. It reminds me that what's most beautiful to God is holiness. In holiness, we abandon our idols and no longer worship creatures for their beauty, but instead worship God's beauty alone. So this last section is our longing for beauty as a longing for God. 
how can we learn to see our longing for human beauty as ultimately a longing for the beauty of God? I love how he's just holding his heart right there. That's cool. Um, so I agree with Dennis Dutton that our desire for beautiful things, including beautiful people, is a result of early encoding. But I think Dutton doesn't go far enough back. He ends before he gets to God. Our longings can't help but be trivialized when they're reduced to mere survival instincts. Science as the only explanation for what it means to be human is sadly reductionist. So what do Christians have to say about beauty and desire? Well, St. Augustine wrote at length of his experience of both. As a young man, Augustine pursued a life of pleasure before converting to Christianity at age 31. Augustine writes in his Confessions, Late have I loved thee, O Lord, and behold, thou wast within, and I without, and there I sought thee. Thou wast with me when I was not with thee. Thou didst call and cry and burst my deafness. Thou didst gleam and glow and dispel my blindness. Thou didst touch me and I burned for thy peace. For thyself thou hast made us, and restless our hearts until in thee they find our e their ease. Late have I loved thee, thou beauty ever old and ever new. And Augustine recognized that his longings for human beauty had been a shadow of his love for God. He was very influenced by Plato's philosophy. But while Plato makes a distinction between the lower physical world and the spiritual world of the form, so that we have to escape from the physical to get to the spiritual, Augustine maintains that the physical world and its beauty is not something to be transcended, but rather to be loved in light of our primary love for God. Gotta get some Lewis. <laughs> so C.S. Lewis carries on in this vein in his famous essay, The Weight of Glory where he talks about our experience of beautiful things. The books or the music in which we thought the beauty was located will betray us if we trust to them. The beauty was not in them, it only came through them. And what came through them was longing. These things, the beauty, the memory of our own past, are good images of what we really desire. But if they are mistaken for the thing itself, they turn into dumb idols, breaking the hearts of their worshippers. For they are not the thing itself, they are only the scent of a flower we have not found, the echo of a tune we have not heard, news from a country we have not yet visited. And this country isn't the Pleistocene savanna with forked trees where we can evade predators. <laughs> this is God's own country and its memory is carved into our bones. Lewis says that our deepen, deepest longings will be met in receiving divine approval from God, in becoming an ingredient in the divine happiness. When God tells us, well done, we'll neither be vain nor insecure. We will most innocently rejoice in the thing that God has made us to be. If God is satisfied with the work, the work may be satisfied with itself. We also, Lewis says, have a desire to be one with the beauty we see. This is something like the longing of the romantics. This desire to be united with beauty, says Lewis, is a sign that one day we will get in, into the source of beauty and be clothed in the awesome beauty of holiness ourselves. This is near the end of his essay. It is a serious thing to live in a society of possible gods and goddesses. To remember that the dullest and most in uninteresting person you can talk to may one day be a creature which, if you saw it now, you would be most tempted to worship. Or else a horror and corruption such as you now meet, if at all, only in a nightmare. All day long we are, in some degree, helping each other to one or other of these destinations. There are no ordinary people. You have never talked to a mere mortal. Ecclesiastes reminds us that God has made everything beautiful in this time. Also, he has put eternity into man's heart, 
yet so that he cannot find out what God has done from the, the beginning to the end. I really love that verse. I find the promise that God has made everything beautiful in its time to be very comforting. It's not our own assessment of beauty that will win out, but God's. And all things will be made beautiful by him. Even you, even me. Beauty is a reminder of that eternity in our hearts. It can't be explained away by philosophy or science. We can't find out what God has done from the beginning to the end. We can only love and sing and wonder when we encounter the eternal beauty of God. So to close this lecture, I want to look at a poem by Gerard Manley Hopkins. He's one of my favorite poets, and he writes in a really weird way. <laughs> That's hard to understand, so I will help you. Um, he, is a, he was a celibate priest, and, so, and you can see from his journals and his writing that he really struggled with this temptation of desire for beautiful people. Many of his poems are honest wrestlings with God through various doubts and struggles. This poem is where I got the title for my lecture, um, and it's called To What Serves Mortal Beauty. It seems to me to be Hopkins working through his own response to human attractiveness. So I'm going to read the poem through, and then I'll talk about what he's saying um, as best I can. To what serves mortal beauty? To what serves mortal beauty? Dangerous. Does set dancing blood. The O seal that so future. Flung prouder form than Purcell tune let's tread to. See, it does this. Keeps warm men's wits to the things that are. What good means? Where a glance master more may than gaze, gaze out of countenance. Those lovely lads once wet fresh windfalls of war's storm. How then should Gregory, a father, have gleaned else from swarmed Rome? But God to a nation dealt that day's dear chance. To man that needs would worship block or barren stone, our law says, Love what our love's worthiest, we're all known. World's loveliest, men's selves. Self flashes off frame and face. What do then? How meet beauty? Merely meet it, own, home at heart, heaven's sweet gift. Then leave, let that alone. Yea, wish that though, wish all, God's better beauty, grace. So this is a Petrarchan sonnet, and um, in the typical <laughs> style, there's a, po a problem posed and then an answer given by the poet. So the problem is that mortal beauty seems to be dangerous. It sets our blood dancing. <laughs> and because he was a celibate <coughs> priest, he knew the temptations of physical beauty. And, and so the O seal that so future, we want to seal up human beauty, keep it for ourselves, possess it. It's more thrilling than the music of Henry Purcell, if you can believe that. <laughs> um, and Hopkins defends beauty by saying that it keeps warm men's wits to the things that are. So the physical world is not this danger to avoid or this platonic illusion to transcend. Hopkins really loved nature. A lot of his poems are about nature. And he saw God's beauty through it. So likewise, even a glance at human beauty can keep us aware of the physical world around us. But Hopkins' advice is to see beauty as a heavenly gift that points us to God's better beauty, grace. And here we see a story about Gregory, a father. This is a church father. Um, and he was in Rome when he saw two beautiful young boys being sold as slaves. And so he was so struck by their beauty that he asked where they came from, and he was told England. Then he made a hilarious pun of saying that they looked like angels, not angles. <laughs> um, but because of his interest in these two boys and finding out about England, this, uh, this led to a missionary expedition to England and eventually um, the evangelization of most of southern England. So 
basically Hopkins is saying, well, would that have happened if these boys weren't so beautiful? Um, but it was God who gave this to the, the nation. Um, but then Hopkins tackles the pro problem of idolatry, saying humans would even worship block or barren stone. We just have to worship. <laughs> it's, it's the way that our hearts are made. Um, and we see that humans are, out of the created things, um, the most worthy of love. Their frame and their face expresses their individual being in this world, their selves. They're created in God's image. They bear something special. But we shouldn't worship mortal beauty. We should merely meet it, recognize it as heaven's sweet gift, but not obsess over it. Our heart should remain at home, secure. And above all, we should let human beauty direct us to God's better beauty, grace. How meet beauty? Hopkins asks in his weird way, <laughs> phrasing things. Well, I have a couple of suggestions, and I will say that <laughs> this is hard for me too. Um, but first, in regard to our own appearance, we should be honest about our own gifts and limitations. We can't know exactly why some people are given certain gifts, and we can't know all God's reasons for making some people very beautiful. Not every person is equally intelligent, artistic, funny, or organized. <laughs> I'm certainly not the latter. It's the same with beauty. Some are more gifted that way than others. It doesn't help to pretend that you're less or more beautiful than you are. <laughs> I think it's good to have an honest assessment as much as we can. But regardless of our physical beauty, we can praise God for his creation of us. David writes, Your eyes saw my unformed body. You knit me together in my mother's womb. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And that is a prayer that I've been trying to pray more. I praise you because I am fearfully and wonderfully made. And believing that, even if I don't feel that I measure up to a, a certain standard. Um, when is the last time that you praise God for that? Does it seem proud to you? But David recognizes that God cares for how our bodies are created, so we should too. Now because of the fall, our bodies experience disfigurement, disease, and disability. These limitations shouldn't surprise us even as we lament them. But regardless of our beauty, we can all find joy in experiencing the world through our bodies. Our bodies are a gift from God. The ability to engage with the world through our senses is special. We're not ghosts or machines. We can enjoy the scent of wild roses, the taste of ripe figs, the feel of wet grass under our feet. In the times when I've been regular about running, <laughs> which is not often enough, I have found that my body starts to become more of an ally rather than an enemy that doesn't conform to my ideal of beauty. Last summer I went on two backpacking hikes, uh, multi-day trips, and it was really rough going and I was the slowest one, but I felt very proud of what my body had accomplished when I got to the top of the mountain or the end of the trail even though I was all scraped up and covered in dirt. And it's really good to experience the wonder of what our bodies can do, not just what they look like. Mm -hmm. If you happen to be a particularly beautiful person, not naming any names, <laughs> with great beauty comes great responsibility. We are always accountable to God for how we use our gifts. Beauty should not make us proud or manipulative. Instead, like Esther, the beautiful person can ask God how even their beauty can best be used for such a time as this. Like all gifts, mortal beauty must be stewarded well. In regard to the beauty of others, we should make every effort to see the beautiful person as a full human being, not an object. We shouldn't ignore their beauty or the feelings it awakens in us, but we should give thanks to God for beauty rather than obsessing over it. Leave, let that alone, as Hopkins says. We always have to remind ourselves that whether in reference to ourselves or to others, Physical beauty has no bearing on our innate value as human beings created in God's image. This is really difficult when beauty packs such an immediate wallop and is so worshipped in our culture. 
But I would say life and community together actually also goes a long way towards demystifying beauty. When a very beautiful person shows up at Libri, it does create this flurry of excitement. I've seen it. Um, and <laughs> there's no denying that. But as people pull beads <coughs> alongside each other and argue over lunch, they're forced to recognize each other as more complicated than just a pretty face. So I'm going to end this talk with reading a prayer from this book that I stole from Clark and haven't given back yet, <laughs> which is called Every Moment Holy. Um, and ever since I read it, it's been rattling around in my head. I think it really summarizes our proper relationship to human beauty. Um, and I think it's a good one to memorize. I can send it to you later if you want. Um, and I think it helps us to just retrain some of our um, immediate response towards beauty. So this is a prayer upon seeing a beautiful person. Lord, I praise you for divine beauty reflected in the form of this person. Now train my heart so that my response to their beauty would not be twisted downward into envy or desire, but would instead be directed upward in worship of you, their creator, as was your intention for all such beauty before the breaking of the world. So that's it. I don't know what time we're at. And we can have a discussion. Can you keep track of the time for me? Because I don't have a timekeeping device. Okay. Okay. What time do you want it to go to? What time is it? 8.30? 8.33. 8.33 and a half. Okay. Mm -hmm. Tell me when, when do you want to go? To tell me when it's been 15 minutes. Mm -hmm. okay. mm -hmm. We'll see how interesting it is. <laughs> <laughs> okay. So, as you talking about physical beauty mostly, mm -hmm. um, I just wanted to, because like, there's also, I, I keep thinking about fairy tales and mm -hmm. like the wicked stepsisters are always ugly mm -hmm. and the, the, the heroine is pretty. Yeah. And that has always spoken to me more about inward beauty. Um, and so I wanted to know if you're distinguishing those as physical appearance is mortal beauty, but inward beauty might be something mm -hmm. that's different. more eternal. Yeah, yeah, and that's, that's yeah. more what I see as a character, like the beauty of yeah. holiness or the beauty yeah. of character, yeah. Yeah, so when I talk about beauty, I'm not talking about someone's, yeah. someone's um, character. Yeah. yeah. So that's a, thank you, that's a helpful distinction to make. Um, and it is, it is interesting that in all of these stories, it's always that way. Yeah, <laughs> um, yeah. I, I mean, I feel that personally because in many um, movies, the the girl with curly hair is like the evil one or the one who you take over. So, yeah. So it's interesting how we kind of have these archetypes. Um, and I think that it is also problematic um, that we tend, but then there's also something that resonates with us. Right? So it's very complicated. Yeah. <laughs> I don't know if you have any thoughts about it. I was just wondering if it speaks to, and if you thought about that the two might interact and influence one another. Yeah. You know, we also have this idea that inward beauty can surpass outward appearances, and so a technically ugly person <laughs> might would can be radiant with God's beauty. Totally, I think it's definitely true. Um, and and like I said too, like what we find attractive is not always like the the traditional standard of beauty. So. Like 
obviously people are attracted to all different kinds yeah. of um, people, and a lot of that has to do with like how their personality is expressed mm -hmm. through their physical yeah. being. And, like when I think about my friends, like regardless of whether they're you know, considered beautiful or not, to me, I don't want them to look a different way because that's how, who they are yeah. to me, you know. Um, and that their body expresses like, who they are. So uh, I think that's a really good point. But I also wonder about you know fairy tales. Like I think. We all make. Oh. <laughs> you okay? Are you? Uh, okay? I'm fine. Okay. You're not fine. I'm okay. <laughs> <laughs> I'm sorry. It's okay. It's okay. Just a little bit stuff. Thanks. Um, okay. Yeah, we 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 make like a lot of snap judgments, and we we use like short like if you ever watched what not to wear and it's interesting because what they do in the show is really tell people like what is the image that you're projecting with how you look how you dress like that everyone is projecting an image whether or not they kind of think about it and we make those judgments all the time um by looking at other people and saying like oh this means this this means this yeah. and sometimes we're wrong and sometimes we're right but i think that for us like that that's the halo effect at work yeah. this idea of like okay beautiful character that means that they have these other virtues too. Yeah. And so it's like shorthand for like, yeah. oh, morally good. So, yeah. um, and I think there's yeah. like issues with that, but I think that's kind of like what's going on there too, yeah. partly. So mm -hmm. I don't know, well, like, can we get rid of that? I don't yeah. know. I mean, yeah. I think there are stories, um, like Beauty and the Beast, for example, but you will note that it's usually like the man is the beast and yeah. the woman is still beautiful yeah. regardless of what yeah. happens. But um, where, where that is like, you know, a little turn on its head. But well, and in that story, even it's interesting because it's the sister's jealousy of beauty, like their jealousy. Like she's already beautiful, so that implies they are not known for their beauty. But then their jealousy becomes a feature. So the two are very much entwined in, right. in a kind of mythological imagination. Right. Right. Yeah. You yeah. see that in the Unlawful Stories, like Cinderella. And yeah. 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 I'd love to think more about fairy tales. <laughs> Thank you for bringing that. Yeah. Does the halo effect um, prevent or create an obstacle for the person to develop virtue? The beautiful person, you mean? Yeah, I mean, uh, uh, I mean, in fairy tales, the, they happen to be beautiful and able to also be good. Mm -hmm. But in our experience, it's it can be sometimes the most vile mm -hmm. is the pig with the, the golden mm -hmm. earring or yeah. the nose ring, right. and so I was just. Uh, you know, sometimes, like you said of this friend of yours, that mm -hmm. you know, there, there, there was some envy, mm -hmm. and uh, and this person was like, it's not like I asked for this, mm -hmm. and it seemed like it was almost an obstacle, right. uh, and maybe for her it was an obstacle that mm -hmm. she was trying to push toward virtue, mm -hmm. but maybe someone could fall back on it and mm -hmm. say, well, they already think I'm good, so I don't have to strive to be good you start believing your own press mm -hmm. and so I, I just wondered in your readings or yeah well I mean I think I think that is true like any <laughs> any skill that we have that can give us that um, kind of halo effect like I used to think that everyone who wrote really good poetry was a good person <laughs> and I found out that wasn't true <laughs> so I think that can, that can always happen but I think uh, I think that like the picture of Dorian Gray is a really good example of that too like this is someone who um, everyone saw it really beautiful and thought, wow, he's like all this innocence and purity about him. He must be this great person. And then, like, he, someone persuaded him to um, just enjoy the pleasure, all the pleasure that he could, um, that his beauty kind of opened all the doors to. And 
because of that he became very corrupted mm -hmm. and so he used it as a free pass to do whatever he wanted because mm -hmm. people would trust like he had a face that people want like wanted to trust basically mm -hmm. and i think we see that too um but unfortunately we don't have like magical portraits that <laughs> can just take all the well unfortunately um <laughs> yeah so so yeah i think definitely we see that that there's that people use it to manipulate other people and um in sometimes really damaging ways, and I think it actually takes a lot of effort, probably, <laughs> to um, get past that. And I don't know. I don't know how you how you do that um, continually. Mm -hmm. and if anyone has struggled with that problem here, <laughs> you, can, you, you can talk about it. But I think it is hard because it's a lot more acceptable to talk about our struggles with feeling not beautiful enough than with feeling too beautiful. Um, well, I just think of famous Hollywood stars. Yeah. I mean, most of them are there because they're just beautiful. Mm -hmm. And um, <coughs> we just believe everything they say. Mm -hmm. uh, and it even shapes politics totally. and it shapes mm -hmm. yeah. ethics and how we think about, or how we think about maybe controversial issues. Mm -hmm. We look to movie stars mm -hmm. who probably only think about the script that they're trying to act. Um, and haven't really dealt deeply <laughs> into these things, but we look to them to be our spokespeople. Mm -hmm. Yeah. You know, yeah. Um, I find that very. Yeah. Mm -hmm. Yeah, and so they just kind of believe their own press. But I, I appreciate what you said about, um, yeah, just like any gift, like if someone is very good um, uh, rhetorically or they're wealthy, um, all these things can be obstacles in which to, to build virtue. They're not necessarily. Uh, um, Debilitating, but they are, but they are something that they will have to deal with. Mm -hmm. you know? mm -hmm. yeah. To have proper humility with, and I think so. To see how, how can that be something that I'm used responsibly? That's always mm -hmm. a question. But yeah, beauty just has like a lot of immediacy. So I think that that it makes it um, harder to kind of think critically about sometimes. Mm -hmm. question. Uh, I think uh, as we get to know someone, we don't can't see them anymore. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Because they become a whole person. Uh, it's, it's in a sense, they become invisible to us. Mm. As, I mean, as, as body. Mm. They just become a whole person. Mm. Yeah, it's like a fuller, a fuller picture that we see. I mean, I feel like but I still notice people's physical characteristics, so like, partly because I feel like I see them, like I said, through, through that. Um, but yeah, it's you don't encounter a person like just as a body and I think that you want to they, they're not just certainly you get you have a leg up if you look good yeah yeah especially if your leg's up too far any thoughtful comments <laughs> to my mind is the, the famous line from the Wizard of Oz where when Dorothy gets poofed and she's met by Glinda and, uh, mm -hmm. and, and, and she goes, well, you, who are you? Well, I'm, I'm the Witch of the North. And well, I thought witches were hideous and ugly. Oh, only the bad witches are. <laughs> um, so that um, I, I didn't read either of these works exhaustively, but over the last couple of years I've, I've picked, um, picked through first um, sort of the Dante series 
Um, and then more recently, I looked at uh, Milton's Paradise Lost. Um, so when I so the, the, the first point I, I, I want to make is is much more along the lines of Jessica's and, and the Glinda and the, and the Bad Witch. Um, it, it, it was interesting. It's interesting to see, um, you know, the as as Dante goes through hell, every, every everyone there is is much as you would say, ugly and corrupted and and twisted, and so you can see, um, and 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 my mind goes to sort of like a meth house, you know, um, uh, and I'm I'm seeing like scabs of skin and 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 so forth, you know, people on the street. Doping, um, high on heroin, and I'm, I, I, there's there's a deformity of the body at work. Um, so I don't know where I want to go with that, but I, I I just wanted to put a little bit more of those thoughts in there. But what 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 struck me more interestingly is there is a scene in Paradise Lost when Eve is created and she's um, she looks in the puddle and and she's she can't take her eyes off herself, and I, all of a sudden I go back to like my eight year old you know not. 13-year-old boy, I'm like, you know, she, nice tits, you know, like, like that's, that's her, I'm like, what, why is she looking at herself? And it, uh, it's not even striking me. And, and then I go, female body image stuff. It, it, Milton, Milton was on to it, because it, it, I actually had to come back to it, because when um, she's, so, so what's, Eve's, Eve's looking at, uh, admiring her own beauty, and then, but when um, Adam is naked, and he's, and he's walking, uh, to go meet an angel or something. It it talks about his um, he's naked, but he's unashamed because he still has the trains of authority. Mm -hmm. And so it, and I'm going, oh, so what is the function of clothing? What what, what are you covering up? Eve's covering up beauty, and Adam's, and it, and it's the clothes are, are authority. Women likes a man in uniform. Um, <laughs> wow, you're really a good Yeah, yeah. <laughs> so. So By the way, I, that's variable too. <laughs> <laughs> so I mean, I'm I'm very much, um, I'm I'm a Duttonite. I'm the I, I'm I'm of sort of the art instinct school of thought in this room. But I I do think that our our poets and our writers, um, you know, they they're they're in tune with what's going on, and I and I think that that story of at least how I was reading out of, of Milton mm -hmm. there I'm going he was he was he was on to the the essential functions of, of, of decoration and adornment and and I I don't know where exactly my thesis is but I'll leave it somewhere there but it was interesting to see that divide of of, of, of clothing for authority's sake and, and clothing for beauty's sake did that specifically say something I, about I, it, it, it was not, I don't think it was, I didn't catch an explicit line, but there, I think the, um, I, I, I sort of rephrased it on, because I went naked bungee jumping, and so it, it was in my, it was in my head when I was going there, but the, 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 uh, and I, and I, and I, and I captioned a picture of myself with, with a, with a ripoff of, of, of a Milton-esque line, and, and it was something that he, uh, he walked. With, he, Adam walked with authority, with no more rope, with no more, um, no more tr trains entailing than his own complete perfections, right? Like the trains of a king. Wow. Yeah, like that's the. And, 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 Why do you have good self-esteem? <laughs> <laughs> uh, absolutely. So I captured myself of that. Yeah. <laughs>
Uh, well, maybe since since you're in the school of Dutton, maybe you can um, answer this question that I've been thinking about, okay. which is why um, human females are the ones who are more decorative, expected to be more decorative, but male birds are the ones who are more decorative. <laughs> Interesting. Yeah. Um, I I would. I do not know because I'm I'm. Uh, I'm roughly in that school. I, I don't, but though I don't study specifically, um, I, I can only hazard a guess. Um, my my guess would be um, I can't hazard a, a, a very good guess. I might think about it, but I'm on the spot now, and so get back to me. I'll get, get back to you. <laughs> <laughs> it's something interesting to think about when we think yeah. we, if we think it's like a default thing for the woman to have to be more attractive. Mm -hmm. whatever. Mm -hmm. uh, I don't know. I don't, I don't. I don't have a good answer to why it's that way in our culture, mm -hmm. <laughs> or it seems like actually in a lot of cultures. Mm -hmm. Yeah. Well, thank you for talking. I, I don't mean this to be a conclusion thought. <laughs> thanking you, but just thanks for doing the topic yeah. because I find it so awkward to talk yeah. about, and I so appreciate you putting the time into it and then normalizing it by giving it this much space. Yeah. And that um, that closing prayer was, um, I love that book too, and there's all these like prayers in the back, and that's one of them to like, kind of, mem the, it suggests you memorize them, you know, for when something happens in life, there's like, when you hear a siren, here's a little one, when you see a bird, and then when you see a beautiful person. And that too was like a liturgy that normalized the spotting of a mm -hmm. beautiful person mm -hmm. in a way that I just thought, wow, I've been, my um, liturgical tradition or as a Christian just doesn't have these liturgies mm -hmm. that normalize mm -hmm. beauty in the way that we need it. So I feel like your talk kind of just put it in its place in a way that's really challenging and also really relieving and kind of opens up all these new avenues for me. So I just love that you did it. Yeah, I, I mean, I really like that prayer because I think it, it doesn't say, like, don't, like, pretend this doesn't exist. <laughs> Just, it, it's a, it's like a recognition, but it's directing it towards the right place, I think. Um, because I think it's wishful thinking that we could even not notice, but also that actually, yeah, it can, when it's rightly ordered, it can move us towards thanking God. Yeah, yeah, but it's hard <laughs> to do. <laughs> As I was, uh, I appreciated the talk. I, when I was thinking in, in Hopkins' last line, what are the last words about um, God's, how does he say it, the beauty? God's bread of beauty and grace. Yeah, I, <coughs> just thinking, at least in my experience, <coughs> you know, when someone comes to Christ or they experience a significant healing, mm -hmm. there is such a beauty mm -hmm. that emanates from mm -hmm. them. Yeah. And it, it's not just character, it's mm -hmm. Christ. Yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. And I feel like <clears throat> you know that part of our longing is to see that formed in each other, mm -hmm. not just in ourselves. And mm -hmm. it, it's a very attractive thing. Mm -hmm. it, it's meant to be an attractive thing. Mm -hmm. That beauty of Christ mm -hmm. in in lives, which has nothing to do with attractive. You know, someone from Hollywood who can be very uh, physically attractive, but can be very corrupt. Mm -hmm. That that light is not there. So. So that's kind of a neat thought to mm -hmm. to be s wanting to see that beauty formed in the lowliest of people, mm -hmm. um, because we know what that you know someone who's I remember when I was a new Christian someone who's just glowing you know <laughs> and that happens it's an, it's a, a 
transformative thing, so mm -hmm. it's kind of cool. Yeah, that's a really lovely thought, and I think that is that this idea of like where our bodies are temples for the Holy Spirit, so yeah. it's like what is the inside um, can create that. Yeah, that I think people are attracted to that as well. And yeah. so, like, again, to Jesus, like, he didn't have that beauty, but people were still attracted mm -hmm. to him. Yeah, <laughs> it's not through beauty. Yeah, yeah, mm -hmm. there was something mm -hmm. that people saw, and I don't know <laughs> what he looked like, but it was not because of that. And I think, again, that goes back to the proverb, too, about um, the, like, a beautiful woman with no discretion is like a mm -hmm. gold ring in a pig's nut, and that it's, like, actually, it, it's like this, this disjoint in our minds when you see that, and it's like, there's something, you know, like, sad about that to be like, you have this, but there's nothing behind it, kind of, so, yeah. So, so, so then, have we come full circle to beauty is transcendent? Mm. Like, it, that's like, like this like, Christian concept of being a reflection of God. There must be, if it's not actually transcendent, then it points to a transcendent reality, or a transcendent reality. But yeah, I would say it points. Yeah. I don't think it is, it's not a transcendent thing, because like we said, like it can be, there can be that corruption yeah. behind it. Yeah. It can be deceptive, and I've heard mm -hmm. that's a result of the fall. Like, you look in nature and you see like poisonous mushroom, poisonous frog, yeah. like these things that actually look beautiful, but they're, they're bad for you. Yeah. <laughs> um, yeah. They could be deadly. Yeah. So I think that, like, I don't know, maybe pre-fall, like, things that looked beautiful were, were different, you know, yeah. but, but now we can't always trust it. But I think that it can, um, it can signal, like, at least like this, it triggers that longing in us for something that's transcendent. And, um, but I think that it's different than the platonic sort of thought because it's, because it's relational, right? Yeah. Um, yeah. Where we're directed is someone who cares about us and created us in his image, not just like an intellectual contemplation of something. But I would think that beauty is a part of the transcendent. I mean, I do think, I agree with you on everything else. Like, <coughs> I mean, truth can be perverted. Mm -hmm. Goodness can be perverted. Mm -hmm. And those are usually the triumvirate mm -hmm. uh, transcendentals of Plato. <coughs> And he does believe that it points to something beyond, mm -hmm. points to something transcendent, but usually the thing that points to something transcendent has some attachment to the transcendence itself. Mm -hmm. I don't know how to name that. <coughs> but, you know, Thomas Aquinas said that the ultimate end of life is the beatific vision. Mm -hmm. That the reason that heaven will be so wonderful is because we'll be captivated by the beauty of God. Yeah. And that beauty is not just... Uh, um, it's not just an earthly reality, mm -hmm. but it has its source in the divine yeah, reality. I agree. Yeah. So it seems that beauty is a transcendent, but mm -hmm. but we have to be very careful mm -hmm. of not trying to make a god out of something mm -hmm. beautiful. Yeah, mm -hmm. that's right. But to say it has its source mm -hmm. in the one who is divinely beautiful, mm -hmm. and try to grade it by then, mm -hmm. by that, mm -hmm. because there might be a truth claim, mm -hmm. but if it's not rooted in the source of all truth, then we can say, well, maybe it's not speaking fully, truthfully, or even falsely. Mm -hmm. And so I think that beauty can be the same. Yeah. Um. Yeah, no, I fully agree with that. And I think it could be like any any way that we reflect God in our being. It's, it's like similar to that, you know, like, well, is God intelligent? Well, yeah. yeah. <laughs> but can intelligence be yeah. used for the wrong thing yeah. and be or deceptive? Well, sure, yeah. Mm -hmm. yeah. Yeah, so I think that's, that's very wise to point out. But yeah, and I definitely think that beauty is like, an attribute of God, and like it talks about, you know, in mm -hmm. Psalm 96. Um, yeah. 
but that should be like our ultimate long mm -hmm. beauty. I really appreciate your talk and the work you did. Thanks. That's good. Um, reminded of that, that quote, what was said, but one the scripture, uh, the eye is never satisfied with seeing. Mm. And it mm. seems like, like a lot, there's that other one from Helen Keller, you know, the most beautiful things are not seen with the eye, mm. Mm. Mm -hmm. or touched, or mm. felt, or felt in the heart. Mm. Tom's comment reminded me of one by Watchman Nee, too, how he said, beauty is not necessarily Christ. Uh, a hot atmosphere in a meeting is not necessarily Christ. Uh, great intelligence is not necessarily Christ because Christ is Christ. Sometimes it's, it's not very beautiful when you see him doing some things through some people that seem hard and harsh, but yet you look at it and it's beautiful. Like I saw a woman in on a video in Haiti after the earthquake and they had no medicines mm. to do things and she had to have her broken femur set mm. and this doctor had to do it without having couldn't give her anything mm. when it was in a hospital he'd have filled her so full of dough before he did it mm -hmm. and she started singing praise to God mm. and this you just hear this and that was so that was beautiful yeah. mm. Mm -hmm. and there's another one where uh, I noticed John Vanier just died about a week ago. Oh, I think oh really? Yeah. Yeah. And I remember him saying so many times, to love someone mm. is to show them their beauty. Because mm. mm. most of us don't see it. That's really beautiful. We don't see our own beauty. Mm. And I struggled with that for a long time. Mm. God had to just show it to me mm -hmm. himself. Because nobody else can. Mm -hmm. Is somebody just telling you? Yeah. It's like water off a duck's back. And it's a place too where, um, yeah, you can see it in how you see a couple sometimes. The man is very plain, the woman is really beautiful. Mm -hmm. The woman's very plain, the man's very beautiful. Mm -hmm. And it shows how to have a good relationship isn't dependent on being mm -hmm. equal in beauty mm -hmm. or even being beautiful. Right. Um, mm -hmm. I liked your other talk too. I listened to it this afternoon. Sex and human rights. Oh, yeah, yeah, related. Attraction, I know that was the title, right? Attraction. This, yeah. this one, and it seems like attraction is can be deceptive too. We can mm -hmm. spend too much time being attracted to anything, like a yeah. sunset. Yeah. Enjoy it, but you don't need to spend every night three hours of the sunset. Yeah. <laughs> Speak for yourself. <laughs> There's a really beautiful sunset out there right now. So. Yeah. 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 yeah, thank you, Tim. That's super helpful. And I really love that quote from Jean Vanier, too. And I think like Jean Vanier was the person who spent his most of his life working with people with disabilities, developmental disabilities. I see that hand movement. Hold on. <laughs> and, I, and I think, you know, and, and I've gone to stay at um, Larsh, which is the organization he founded where people um, with disabilities live like for their whole lives. And I, I for sure see the beauty that comes out of those people um, and just like the simple and kind way that they interact with you and show hospitality and um, and I think that's that's one thing that the overvaluing of beauty can definitely do is that we sort of don't see those people, anyone who like we don't think of as beautiful kind of just disappears from our vision and we don't see the gifts that they have to offer. And so I, I love that idea that um, that's part of our job to <laughs> show people um, the beauty that's in them. And I think that's, yeah, that's really good. Yeah, could you, I probably missed it, but um, could you summarize um, once more 
how you see the difference, or you see the balance between beauty as transcendent, but also in the eye of the beholder. Mm. Um, I know, like one example I've heard of how it seems to be more subjectivized is I was in Switzerland for a while, and like when I'm there, I look at the mountains and I'm like, oh man, this is so beautiful. Mm -hmm. But I know that talking with some of the people who live there, like back in history, people looked at the mountains and just were like afraid of them because yeah. of like how dangerous they were. Totally. So it just kind of shows that you can, people from different times can also look at things and uh, have different experiences looking at it. But yeah, definitely. Yeah, and I mean, I think it's really the romantics who kind of made us look <laughs> at mountains and see them that way because there's this experience of sublime that you look at mm -hmm. like mm -hmm. something so grand and imposing and you have this like kind of almost terror, <laughs> like holy terror or something um, that's, that it really strikes you. And before that, people didn't want to go around and look at mountains and lakes and just like enjoy their beauty mostly. Um, but, but even like, you know, but I, I look at the Bible and I see these images of nature that you know, seem to be very focused on that, like, yeah, the beauty of nature too. But so I, I so yeah, it's, I thought about that with the romantics too, because I definitely get that feeling when I, you know, when I went to Switzerland and looked at the mountains. I was like, <sighs> but, but I think sometimes like a certain cultural movement can reveal something also that we didn't, <laughs> that we didn't really know or before too so did that happen like yeah maybe but I think also we do have different certain experiences um like to me the mount like mountain like ocean and mountains together is like the most beautiful thing because that's like where I'm from and that so so yeah you could say that's like early encoding for my childhood I guess like there I do think there are those influences there like you know that you imprint on like people that you grew up with for example um of like that might influence like what you find attractive to um, and of course culture like I think all of these things are part of it I just don't think it's like the full explanation for for it um, I feel like this is a very rambling answer to your question but so I think that there is definitely subjective experience of beauty um, but I also think that like this like Clark was talking about like the source of beauty being God it's like all of even these subjective experiences and then the ones that seem like cross-cultural or the ones that are like just in our culture valued like all of those things point back to that ultimate source um so i don't think it's it's so much about like what that particular because i think all these attempts to be like this is the rule of beauty like these are the proportions that make this person beautiful and this is the mathematical equation like it might be helpful for art to some extent but i don't think that we can go around like with a measuring rule to determine like it's the it's it's like how we experience it and then where do we think, what do we think that experience points to? Um, yeah, I don't know. I'd be interested to hear Jessica's view, but because she's an art <laughs> teacher. So. Well, well, I was thinking about maybe part of it is that, be, uh, well, maybe we use beauty to mean a lot more than it used to mean. Mm. In other words, and in other words, it's become, we use beauty to mean awe, and we use beauty to mean respect, and we use mm. me, so, we like honor and respect the woman's efforts or we're touched by her singing in that pain or we're overawed by the mountains and maybe this point is moot because we already understand these all go back to god mm -hmm. so maybe we're now we're saying beauty is anything that reminds us of god <laughs> or maybe we're our culture so values beauty that it's become the ultimate compliment and we just want to we want to kind of indicate our highest favor, we say, call something beautiful, mm -hmm. when 
when it used to be kind of, you wouldn't call the mountains so to see beautiful, you'd call them awe-inspiring, mm -hmm. and you'd call yes. the human form beautiful. That's interesting. Mm -hmm. That's really interesting. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. Their language is not specific enough. Yeah. <coughs> yeah. Yeah. And I think it is good to think, like, especially with, you know, people that we encounter, <laughs> to how, like, how do we start complimenting them? Like, I think it's, I think it is, like, nice to give someone a compliment about how they look, but that shouldn't be, like, the only thing or the yeah. default thing that we yeah. do, kind of, you know, and, yeah, especially, like, like with Sarah Beth, for example, I always like think, okay, I need to make sure that I don't just say like, well, I love your dress or whatever, but mm. be like, wow, you're so creative, like you're really brave or whatever, things mm -hmm. like that. I don't know if you think about that, <laughs> you know, having having daughters, but um, it isn't really important. I would add to what you were just saying, sorry. Mm -hmm. or did you want to respond to that? Mm -hmm. Oh, I just wanted to add, I, I just wanted to uh, reference that quote that you had by C.S. Lewis. Mm -hmm. Because I think that answer responds in somewhat to your question because beauty is subjective, mm -hmm. but it is something that longs, that we, that draws us out of ourselves, mm. but we want to possess it mm. and um, possess whatever it is to capture it by a picture. Look how beautiful the mountains are, you know, mm. and then Instagram it so people can validate my experience. <laughs> <laughs> and then I know that it was beautiful or something like that because right. it had so many likes. But there is yeah. this, we're trying to always possess mm. beauty. Mm. Um, so I do think that there's a subjective element that I might think is beautiful and maybe the other person doesn't. Mm. Um, so it's always eluding us. And it's more, it's, it's, even though we're trying to grasp it, it always eludes us, but it's always there, always beckoning us. And so, you know, Lewis is saying that it's, it's, the, it's the place that, you know, like you look in the mirror and see the land that you're looking at, and you're actually looking at the same place where you always look at, but somehow it gives you a longing for something else, mm. a longing for some perfection of it. Mm. And so when I think that we have this subjective experience of beauty that always eludes us, actually points us to something perfect that cannot be possessed by us, that it will always elude us and even betray us as dumb idols, as mute idols as soon as we possess them. Mm. And so they have to stand up for themselves. And so that's where I see the relationship between the subjective and the transcendent. Mm. Well, it's also the scripture that you want, you mentioned Proverbs 31. One of those translations is beauty is deceptive. Mm. And I wonder where that, what God's trying to tell us, not just in that scripture, but this Ezekiel or Isaiah where he Satan is described as your beauty deceived you. Yeah, I I was just thinking about how you spent time looking at the real beauty movement and I really appreciate that. Um I feel like my thought isn't totally complete. Just for the process. Pardon me? Just verbal process. Yeah, yeah okay. <laughs> Come with me, people. Um, I have always been annoyed by it because even in that picture, the women are still half naked. They're yeah. using the same yeah, totally. industry yeah. to promote beauty. And yes, there's diversity, but it's also lacking in diversity. Yes. Yeah, yeah, they're still so beautiful. Yeah, yeah. yeah. And it's yeah. like come on, you're killing me. And so I just, it kind of made me reflect on the purity movement and how we've been discussing that here or amongst peers lately, how they, instead of um, selling sex in one context, they sell sex in another context. And they 
aren't actually removing themselves and looking at it from a different perspective. They're just using what the culture loves and indulges themselves in and promotes it in a different fashion. And so seeing the real beauty movement and how it doesn't actually give us a Christian perspective, it just takes our perspective and changes it. Mm-hmm. And, um, and it's not true beauty in a sense because the people that we're seeing who say that they're beauty- beautiful have accepted themselves mm-hmm. when the people who want to accept themselves are looking to them, but those people didn't have an ad to get them to that acceptance. Mm-hmm. And so this ad is not going to lead us to acceptance of ourselves. And that's kind of where I stopped at the thought. But it was just like, I appreciate that you took time to look at it. Because I still, yeah, I think it's not truly beauty. And then looking at its essence of um, being beyond us and um, spiritual and, and the spirit of God within us. And I think as Christians, looking at that element of it, of if beauty is truly Christ within us and that was what makes us exceptional then why would we waste time on something that will leave in time or that will leave at the end of our time here on earth why would we um yeah like fixate on it with there's a level of appreciation and then there's like the the needing it, the wanting it right. that can possess us. The possession, the desire to like possess, like Clark yeah, was talking about. Yeah, to capture it yeah. and to make it your own. Yeah, um, the greed of it, kind of. Totally. Yeah. And fixating. Yeah. So I just feel like, yeah, it's like a whole another perspective of beauty. It can't just be something with a little bit of a positive twist on it. Right. That's that really helpful. And I think with like the Lesia Cara song, it, it sort of really just made me think like how it's still it's it's like ourselves trying to give ourselves affirmation yeah. or whatever and and it just kind of seems hollow like it's like there's a hope that's waiting for you in the dark and mm. like well what what like what is the hope <laughs> what does that mean where does that come from like yeah. it's you trying to like believe something and what if you can't you know mm-hmm. and then yeah. you don't have any outside affirmation that comes from God yeah. um, it's either what other people think or what you think of yourself and that's like so changeable that sucks yeah. <laughs> Yeah, um, I really appreciate everything that has been said, and thanks so much for preparing us all. Um, I'm just thinking, like, the the last poem about how um, beauty um, serves to point us to God to towards something better, which is grace. Yeah. Um, what do you think about the pursuit of beauty, not just beauty in and of itself? Mm. What do you mean by the pursuit of beauty? The pursuit of beauty as in the desire to want to be beautiful, uh, to, mm-hmm. yeah, the, mm-hmm. the pursuit of it instead mm-hmm. of just mm-hmm. already existing. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. Yeah. Yeah, that makes me think of, of one girl who was at, one, one woman who was at Liberty in my first student term, and she had done modeling, a lot of modeling, and her, like, her family was not happy about this, and they saw it as like this kind of vain and shallow thing. And, um, and yeah, we talked quite a lot about that, and that was one of the things that had kind of uh, got into some of my thinking about this and like is that is that like wrong <laughs> to to do something that's like in the beauty industry or whatever um, and I, I think I mean I think there's like a responsible way to do that and I think that um, like Esther you know Esther for example <laughs> she did all these like crazy makeup treatments to get ready for this thing again it was like kind of not totally voluntary <laughs> right but but it wasn't I don't know it didn't seem like it was considered like vain so yeah, I mean, this is like, 
Yeah, it's an interesting question. I think that like there is a, a level of which like taking care of our bodies is like part of good stewardship, right? And and like some of that is like cultural, like certain different cultural things, like you kind of fit into your culture. But then I think there's like standards that are harmful, and I think you have to like kind of measure carefully what it's doing to your well-being too, <laughs> and like your relationship with other people and your relationship with God, and is it coming between? that those things you know um and i i don't know i think that's like pretty personal um so yeah i don't think i like i think it can be a creative artistic thing as well like i, th I think of people who have really like an interesting sense of fashion for example and i think you can that can express your personality and your individuality um like my sisters are super creative with style and i'm like wow i didn't know that was an outfit you could wear but like okay cool and, and I appreciate that, and I think that is like an artistic skill, and um, and so yeah, I, I mean, I feel like modeling could be one of those things as well. But I think, again, if it kind of just turns inward and it becomes about like you being better somehow than others, or you feeling like you have to measure up to this thing to be valuable, I think that's where it becomes a problem. I don't know. Do you have any thoughts? Well, no, it just leads me to think like, okay, well then, is like makeup a bad thing? Yeah. You know, or like, are we? trying to attain something or is it just like you put it on because you like it you know like is yeah. it is it neutral or is like the pursuit of beauty wrong yeah yeah i don't think we can escape from the cultural standard either so like that we yeah that like it's a hard thing with like the question of makeup because um a lot of people will say well i just wear it because i like how i look but i don't know like maybe that's possible <laughs> but <laughs> it's, it's possible but but you're you're not just like sitting in a room looking at yourself. <laughs> like you're, you are wearing it, thinking about how you, you will appear to other people, right? So, but is that wrong? I'm not sure. <laughs> Megan? I wonder if it's like, it feels more like food could be more harmful when there's like an urgency to it, almost like, like when you see someone that's beautiful and you kind of like urgently want them or to be around them or to like use them in some capacity, but like when there's urgency, it always fades. Mm. And then there's like beauty that's like more sustainable and then like it's like hard to grasp whether or not I don't know it's just like so multifaceted that it's just there's just so much beauty to it mm. like I feel like with a lot of my friends like say Naomi Naomi <laughs> and like a lot of my friends are just like so beautiful and then, but there's like so much stuff that's going on within that that it's like there's not like this urgency to it I'm not sure I'm explaining it very well but I do feel like there must be like you know, like, when you're not, like, urgently trying to make yourself beautiful, like, and that, not that that's wrong, but it's just kind of, it's kind of harmful to yourself, and then when you're, like, urgently needing someone else, it's, like, it's also harmful to them, because you will move on, and then kind of leave them to fall, mm -hmm. um, and then there's some things that are just, like, more timelessly beautiful, like nature, but, like, you can't, like, as urgently possess it. Yeah. I don't know where I'm going with that, but. Melissa? I wonder, too, if there might be a bit of that control, too. You're getting mm -hmm. to the point where you're trying to control mm -hmm. it, you're mm -hmm. pursuing it to try to control that beauty and control mm -hmm. how people perceive you and, mm -hmm. and that you want to look like this, that that's maybe where it's starting to shift the focus. It's hard to define that line, yeah. mm -hmm. but you know that might be where it's starting to take on the wrong aspect. Right. Well, I think we, did, like, we pursue beauty depending on our own insecurities, too. Like, I think in our society, when it's so, like, social media is such a huge aspect to it, um, like you can like even you said you looked at them and like well they're beautiful <laughs> it's like well yes like i think so too but also they could be looking down at themselves like oh my gosh no like yeah. for me 
that isn't you're doing that because that's your own insecurity or you can look at someone who's like an athlete and be like wow they are gorgeous because that's something that you're insecure about because you don't think that mm -hmm. you are mm -hmm. so i think it just dep completely depends on the person that's looking at mm -hmm. somebody or even seeing a doctor like wow they're they're extremely intelligent mm -hmm. and then you can have the flip side to say you look at somebody and say oh they're beautiful but oh maybe they're not that nice so mm -hmm. okay you almost make an excuse for it yeah. like mm -hmm. i don't know where i'm going <laughs> but yeah. basically just like surrounding it with i think our society it completely depends on who the, what the eye holder is like mm -hmm. who is actually looking at it and seeing like who's defining the beauty mm -hmm. because again like someone might look at a model and be like they're gorgeous and mm -hmm. that model might be having suicidal thoughts right. you're like well how like what do you mean like yeah. you're gorgeous like yeah. why why would you do that like why would you think that oh well my dad was abusive or something like who knows what went on with the history mm -hmm. so like you were saying like when you get to know somebody more like their beauty does come out but mm -hmm. it, it completely depends on your insecurities and how you are perceiving beauty yeah yeah, I think I think it kind of show it does show where your identity sort of lies when you because you have like the certain image of what you feel like you should be or whatever, and I don't think that God is like calling us to be that image of that person like He's calling you to be who He made you to be. Um, I mean, I still think that we I still think that there are kind of certain people that our society treats preferentially as being more beautiful than others. Like I I think that that is a thing that happens because we see it happen. Um, so I don't think it's like all all just like in someone's head or whatever, like to just change their perspective of themselves. But I don't think, yeah, I don't think like that should be our goal is to become like what someone else looks like. Um, but yeah, to like figure out how to best take care of what God has given us. I think. Um, yeah. Just one other comment with that. I think that there is a place to pursue beauty though for yourself, just as we would pursue beauty for our surroundings. Like mm -hmm. I think like mm -hmm. the flowers that show up in the yeah. here, mm -hmm. the table could be without yeah. them and it would still be great. Yeah. But it does add that beauty. And I think there's a place for us mm -hmm. to do that as well. Mm -hmm. I just think that we have to always be considering how we're defining that for going too far mm -hmm. for whatever reason it is, whether it is pursuing for you know, your own, uh, your own mm -hmm. um, uh, anxieties or whether mm -hmm. it's for control or whatever. So I think there is a place for it. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. I agree, too. Yeah, I think that goes, like, I like the song of the songs, you know, it's like, the, the woman says, like, dark I am, but lovely, you know, like, and she's, she, she's like, she'll talk about how beautiful she is, and she's not, like, embarrassed to say that, and I think that is, like, that's fine <laughs> to be like, yeah, I really like my curly hair, or something like that, you know, um, and, and to, to notice those things, and to, you know, um, let other people enjoy them, too, I don't think that's, like, that's not a bad thing, I think it's when you feel like your value lies in that, that's a problem. Yeah, it makes me think, I mean, with the caveat that I've never been to Korea, nor do I, like, I'm, I'm not Korean, but my friends who are Korean, and I've read an interesting article recently just on how, like, there's such a culture there of, like, I mean, and other places, but um, especially in that society, my friends who are from there feel so much pressure to get, like, these regular plastic surgeries that mm -hmm. like everybody normally has and like mm -hmm. um, I the article that I read recently was how was on how like people from North Korea like these women from North Korea um, when they would um, like the, the they were refugees down in 
South Korea and were like othered because they looked so different mm. and they didn't have they hadn't all that stuff. right they didn't have all, and people could tell like oh you must be North Korean wow. because you don't look South Korean like yeah. this kind of cultural mm-hmm. huh. you know and I, I cannot speak fully to that culture and don't want to like misrepresent it all but it just got me thinking about like that's a cultural standard mm-hmm. where like it has become so mm. <laughs> uh, like such a powerful norm yeah. that it's like oh yeah we you know I got blessed I got you know whatever double eyelid surgery or whatever mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. you know might be the mm-hmm. thing so let's just yeah. well I'm really curious to see what will happen happen as like we have more power in genetic engineering and stuff like mm-hmm. that and mm-hmm. I'll be around to see what happens but yeah. I feel like that is a mm-hmm. potential like Pandora's box with that you know like who what is the standard of beauty that gets placed mm-hmm. onto that? And because we know, if we know that beauty gives people an advantage um, yeah. in the world, then do we make everyone beautiful? And what might we lose if that happens? And and whose standard is that? And yeah, so I think I'm like it's sad to me that like you know idea of Korean trans is like, like she the one woman said she didn't realize till she came here that what people were trying to do was look like Western oh, people. Yeah. And and she was like, oh, that's what it's about. And to me, that's really sad. And yeah. we were talking about, well, what was the standard of Korean beauty before there was like so much transaction with the Western world? And mm. like, I'm sure it was different, you know? Yeah. And so, yeah, I think that that's, that's sad. <laughs> um, I, I can't speak much to Korean culture at all, but I, I had a friend who had taught English in Korea and back, and he told me back when Gangnam Style was happening, you know, because from my perspective, it was just weird and funny, and I didn't know, you know, this this guy doing weird stuff, but, but Gangnam was an area of Seoul, mm-hmm. and, and so Gangnam style is that ultra, super Americanized mm-hmm. way of being, mm-hmm. and I went, oh, it means something. It's not just a weirdo prancing around. <laughs> so I, I just thought I'd add that little bit of... Martin, and what time? What time is it? It's nine twenty. Okay, we should let you all go. Yeah, yeah. Martin, yeah, we have the last word. A, Make a, it good, Martin. Rafa, I, just want, I want to thank you. I saw the notes that uh, two Koreans have. Yeah, where'd they go? And I saw just how much you put into that. What I took away was how several times you uh, encouraged us towards the pursuit of inner beauty, um, and how that is so often. The sp- the point at which outer beauty can can show, and it came up in, in that the, that last poem of uh, looking upwards and uh, thanking God for creating what He has created that's beautiful around us, mm-hmm. and an appreciation of that goes an awfully long way. Mm-hmm. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. That's good. Thank you.